0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Julie Douglas, and not with me today is Mr. Lamb, who is out of the country. Instead, one very brave soul joins us today. The one, the only, Allison Voice Like Silk Louder Milk.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. I haven't been in the studio in quite some time, and I'm glad to be back to be discussing word aversion.
0: I know. We're going to get into this in a moment. Um, This is all your fault, this
1: episode today, by the way. You want to explain how it came about?
0: Uh, I do. I do. Um, Actually, do you think you could take us back to one day in July? It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. There was a fire drill here at Stuff Works. We were all congregated in the parking lot.
1: I can take it from there. So yes, we were congregated in the parking lot in Georgia. As you know, it can be quite a warm place in the summertime, and it it can also have a fair amount of moisture. Mm -hmm. So I do believe I made the comment that it was feeling a little moist outside. And Julie, of course, gave me this look because she has that aversion to the word moist, which I do not. And I am one of those people who enjoys tormenting people. With the word moist. Clearly,
0: because as I said, it was 10 o'clock in the morning, and I said to you, it's not even noon.
1: It's like drinking before noon, It was, it
0: was. And so we had this whole conversation of like, oh, why do we have word aversion? What's it all about?
1: And what's going on in your brain when you have this word aversion? Yeah. What was going on in your brain? Like, what did you think when I said that?
0: I thought about the groin area. Ah. And I don't like to say groin either.
1: That's that Oi.
0: Oi. I thought about just just this unpleasant sort of, you know, mustiness. And this is all out of the context of food, by the way. If if someone is saying that something is, you know, there's this cake and it's moist and redolent um, of, you know, fruit trees in May Instead, Then Spain, it's okay for you. Th- totally fine. Because you're
1: reframing. Reframing. That's the key. That's the key is
0: we're going to find out here.
1: So it turns out, though, I'm not alone with this whole moist thing. No, no, you're not. Definitely not. So there was a 2012 Huffington Post entry that I I happened to come across, and perhaps some of you saw as well, and they were trying to come up with synonyms for moist. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I did like some of them. Um, My particular favorite was good crumb. Did you catch
0: that? I did see that. Like I kind of again, I'm going to say it had a little bit of a weird association almost like hey, she gives good crumb, you know. Oh, okay. And this was in the context of food writing, right? Like they were like, hey, as food writers, we have to write about moist all the time. What words can we put in there? So, good crumb was one of them. Sure,
1: spongy. Which uh, I think is fairly descriptive and applies to cake. I would I would give spongy in the in the realm of cake and also hydrated.
0: Hydrated, not dry.
1: A little scientific.
0: Would, yeah, yeah. Hydrated was good because um, it was like, yeah, that's a hydrated piece of cake I just ate, and then not dry was another one. But then I thought, you know what? These are all sort of paltry. I don't know that there actually would be a stand-in for moist when it comes to culinary writing.
1: Yeah, I, I think moist works well, and thus its prevalence uh, to describe cake of all sorts.
0: Nonetheless. Moist just continues to rise as this word that is much maligned. And I wanted to point out that the New Yorker had a blog post called Words Came In Marked for Death. And this was a a Twitter game show that they started called Questioningly. And one of the first installments was, hey, if you were going to remove a word from the English language, which one would it be? And again, Moist got marked for death.
1: Yeah, I also heard that Slacks came in pretty high on that list. Slacks, yes. I might have nominated dungarees myself. Oh, dungarees. I think that's kind of
0: quaint, though.
1: I do. I think it's kind of quaint. But it's also, for me, slacks and dungarees, I I kind of... They're interchangeable.
0: I saw trousers on one list as well. And oh, I, I like trousers. Yeah, Trouser has an
1: elegant connotation for me. How
0: that's, about you? Yeah, same thing. And I think that's what it all boils down to is that for me, that seems kind of like a fancy word for pants. And everybody has their own, you know, idiosyncrasies when it comes to these likes and dislikes of words. And I was thinking about this, too. It even uh, probably comes up in your profession. So if you're a teacher, probably one of the most maligned words for you is the word like. Oh,
1: sure. Absolutely. Did you read the Vanity Fair post in which Christopher Hitchens railed against the uh, usage of like as a placeholder and just its craziness in the English language? I mean, I even hear it out of my my daughter. Yeah. So it's all well and good that we have these grammatical pet peeves, words like irregardless, words such as like, which we already discussed. But we're really talking about words that you have a serious distaste for. And the folks at The Language Log, which is an excellent blog run by a bunch of linguists, um, and in particular there's a a gentleman by the name of Mark Liverman who has written and commented and aggregated posts on the subject at length, and he kind of uh, has taken on the task of defining word aversion. And it's really this physiological response. Mm -hmm. I mean, does it make your skin crawl? Yeah, it does.
0: And I think that's the mystery of it. Like, how could a word elicit a physical response? And how could you, you absorb that into your body like that? And that's what's so fascinating.
1: Yeah, so we really have to dig into the juicy and perhaps Freudian territory of the associations. Oh, and, and we
0: will. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you want to give that a start, Miss
0: Julie? Well, before we uh dive into Freud and the Unconscious, maybe we should play a bit of this clip from Monty Python that you sent me that is wonderful. And um,
1: awesome. Oh, oh, that could be a word. That could be a trigger word. We are going to be working in these trigger words. And awesome, people hate it.
0: They did, but now it's so prevalent that people have begun to adopt it as like, fine, this is a low level word awesome. aversion. Yeah, awesome. How are you doing today? Awesome. Awesome. Um it's I think it's in the realm of like. You know, in terms of pet peeves, uh, but this Monty Python clip, in which there's a kind of Downton Abbey-like congregation of family in a drawing room commenting on their pastoral aristocratic life, uh, they they begin to talk about certain words, Recidivist. And, Recidivist. and uh, and they talk about lovely woody words and dreadful tinny words, tinny. tinny. So let's have a listen there.
1: Gone. <laughs> What's gone, dear? Nothing, nothing. Uh, just, just like the word, it gives me confidence. Gone, gone. It's got a sort of woody quality about it. Gone, gone. Uh, much better than newspaper or litter bin. Oh, words.
0: Dreadful words. Perfectly dreadful. Newspaper, litter bin,
1: dreadful. T- Sort of <gasps> word. Tin, tin, tin. Oh, yeah, don't say tin to back. You know how it upsets her. Good. Sorry, old horse.
0: Alright, so I love that clip because it does kinda of capture this whole thing that we all have of words and it goes on and on and gets even more ridiculous and great and they even bring up the word sausage. That's a nice woody word.
1: Yes. Yes, they do. You know what it made me think of Julie? It made me think if people have these word aversions and they're listening to them with different accents, does it cause the same response? I mean, would it be okay for you to hear somebody say moist with an English accent as opposed to just a flat out American English, uh, Southern accent?
0: No, I still, yeah, even, I think it might even be worse. If it is pronounced in a British accent,
1: okay. So accents have no impact on this word aversion for you, and of course this is anecdotal,
0: totally anecdotal. And as we'll discuss, this uh, word aversion is not well studied. It probably should be because it would be fascinating to know if, like a thousand years ago, if there were certain words that you know got on people's nerves and whine, and and how contextual, cultural that was. Researchers Um,
1: are batting around some ideas, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, but first we got to go into Freud. Because Let's go, Freud. In all things
0: that are sort of grisly and awful, you have to turn to, to Grandpa Freud here. Um, and when we talk about Freud and the unconscious, we're talking about the division of the mind and psychoanalytic theory containing elements of psychic makeup. And we're talking about memories, repressed desires, um, things that are not consciously perceived by us or controlled, but they do affect our conscious thoughts and how we behave in the world. And so Freud, through all of the the therapy that he was doing with his patients, was trying to tease these hidden mental processes from his patients through their dreams or even word associations. And that's where it gets really interesting when you start to look at language and words. And I was even thinking about this in terms of embodied cognition, those studies that uh, talk about how if you have a cup of uh, warm coffee as opposed to a cup of iced tea, when you have that warm coffee in your hand, you're going to think more warm thoughts about the person that you are talking to, as opposed to if you had that iced coffee.
1: Okay, so here's an example for you. Say somebody were to serve you a slice of cake, and on that plate that the cake was served on, there was the word moist written on that plate, indelibly.
0: Fine. Really? Fine. It's the the cake. Then I know this is not going to be a dry cake, and I'm all for it. But
1: even if it was written on the plate, that would not.
0: No. Okay. No, as long as there weren't any strange, like, uh, you know, depictions of groin areas accompanying
1: it. Depicted on the plate. I don't right. think they have those kinds of. There's plates. not some sort of Greek
0: urn somewhere with <laughs> a piece of cake and groinage, but
1: um. Yeah, they have done studies like that in which people uh, who are freaked out by rats. They wrote the word rat on a plate, and then they put a piece of food on it, whatever they were giving the poor test subjects. And the people did have an issue with eating the food on the plate that had rat written on it. So that was kind of interesting. So I was just wondering if that might hold true for you as well. Well,
0: if it said rat, I have to say, then I would probably not be as keen to eat that piece of cake. Sure. Yeah, and and this has come up before in the podcast before, too. Like, if you have a chocolate cake and you write cloaca on the top in, in pretty cursive frosting is someone going to eat it when they know what a cloaca is
1: i think maybe if it were purple frosting
0: all right so for you purple cloaca fine <laughs> <laughs> but i wanted to point out that uh, david eagleman talks about this this adjustability a lot in some of his work in fact it's in his book incognito and this question of free will as being part and parcel of the conscious mind hanging out at the sidelines while the unconscious mind, he says, kind of does all the heavy lifting for us. And ultimately, it, de- it sort of delivers that burp of consciousness that we perceive, which I think is really interesting. Because he says, you know, with some things that we have those aha moments, that right. those moments could have been in the works for weeks, months, or even years. And that all this stuff is going on under the cover of unconscious.
1: And so these word aversions are manifestations. Of what, you know, we find delightful or
0: disgusting in our lives. And so it would stand to reason that words, which also embody symbols, would come to represent ideas unconsciously for us. And then I started to think about Jung, who branched off from Freud, and he had the whole collective unconscious thing going on, right? So he's saying, yes, there's this deal about the unconscious and all this hidden meaning, but collectively, we all sort of sign into this or sign on to this um, system of symbols, and so then I thought, well, that's really interesting because that's perhaps how words like moist rise to the top of our consciousness from the unconscious or the collective unconsciousness.
1: Right. And our podcast isn't going to do anything to, uh, help it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
0: <laughs> no, we're going to continue to uh, heat up the flames under, under moisture there. That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. Now, now I'm thinking about sweating buttocks. Sorry about that.
1: So, Julie, what do you think about bilingual and multilingual folks? Do you think they have such word aversions?
0: Well, I know for a fact that they do have an emotional distance. And I have talked about this before, but there's a study in which participants were asked to assess a financial risk. and now We already know that when it comes to finances and trying to figure out what's a good choice and a bad choice, that we're really messy thinkers about this. And um, what they did, these participants, they were asked to think about this risk not in their mother tongue, but in a second language that they were fluent in. And the study is called The Foreign Language Effect, Thinking in a Foreign Tongue Reduces Decision Biases, which I think just gave away the results. It sure did. Yeah. And the, it was a series of uh, experiments, more than 300 people from the U.S. and Korea. And what they found is that people have two different modes of thoughts, Uh, when they are trying to process information and emotions. And one is really systematic and analytical and cognitive intensive. And the other is fast, unconscious, and emotionally charged. And so what they found is that when people were processing these risks in a second language, they were not weighted with the emotion of the experience of those words that might color their perception and the decisions. So they made far more rational choices, because they weren't freighted with all of this uh, emotion of language. And it gave them that distance that they needed.
1: And we do tend to linger longer over negative emotions. And I think that this is related to a word aversion in that, you know, you think about these words really making you mad or instilling some sort of feeling in you that is not pleasant. And your brain kind of pauses longer over the negativity.
0: It's true, because it turns out that uh, we humans, we remember far more negative words than positive ones.
1: Yeah, there's a study about emotion words, correct?
0: Yeah, um, it was uh, conducted by Dr. Robert W. Schroff, He's the associate professor of applied linguistics at Penn State, and Julia Sanchez, a graduate student in psychology at the Chicago School of Psychology. Um, and she, they, asked groups of people in Mexico City and Chicago, this is important because they wanted to see if there were any cultural differences, In two age groups, 20 years old and 65 years old, to just, you know, list as many emotions as they could, just off the top of their head. And then those emotions were categorized as negative, positive, or neutral. And it turns out that people um, really did know many more of these negative words than positive. We're talking about a proportion of words that is 50% negative, 30% positive, and 20% neutral. Now, in terms of differences between the age groups, it was found that older folks had more of a diversity in, of uh, words. Okay. Which makes sense because they have more life experience and perhaps have dabbled in more word choices. But in terms of proportion of negativity, it didn't matter what age you were. You were still going to use or think of more negative words, you know, depend, no matter what your age was. And it didn't matter if you were from Mexico or, or excuse me, Mexico City or Chicago, you still again had the memory available to you that was associated with negative words.
1: So I wonder if that's why we focus more on word aversion rather than word attraction. Do you have attraction to words?
0: Oh, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Uh, I'm winking at one of them right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know what came up when I was reading this over was uh, a lot of people love the French word for grapefruit. Do you happen to know it? I don't. What is it? Uh, Forgive me, French speakers. Pamplemousse. Pamplemousse. It's quite nice. I I think it sounds excellent, especially as compared with grapefruit.
0: Well, yeah, grapefruit is kind of heavy with the G, right? And we'll talk about that. That's one of those plosive words. And it does have impact, but it's not impactful, just for the record. Oh, it nice. Nicely done. Thank you. I hate, hate
1: impactful. I
0: knew, I see, I knew, it. I knew that would be on your list there.
1: I also hate impact as a verb, but that's a whole like, different, that's ball a whole other ball. And earwax. you're an
0: editor. So by law, I think that you kind of have to.
1: So you would think that I would have a lot. And I mean, you work with words all the time as well. And I, I really don't have too many word aversions, but again, I'm not quite ready to speak to that. No, yet? no, no. Maybe, maybe I'll save that for the end.
0: You mean your like centerpiece of word aversion—the one word that gets you? I
1: just have one word.
0: All right, we'll get to that. I think we all are going to have to build up to this one. Yeah, you I know? think so too. Yeah, um, let's talk about lists of aversion words and attraction words here. Uh, a Mississippi State University survey found that among the student population who submitted their least favorite words, these were the ones that that rose to the top, and this is in order of their level of hatred. Let's hear it. Vomit, moist, puke, phlegm, in my nose right now, as you guys can hear. Slaughter, snot, ugly, damp, and mucus, and then a t- damp, damp. Really? Yeah. Huh. I like damp, and I like dank. Um, Ooh, dank. Dank is a nice descriptor, right? Uh, a 2011 follow-up survey found moist pulling into the number one slot, though. So, so it's really
1: a cultural phenomenon.
0: That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that this is a zeitgeist moment for moist in the world. And it'll be very interesting to see if it takes a turn. Cause as we know, language is ever evolving and, and, and takes on new meaning depending on the sort of experiences that we have with it culturally.
1: So I have to share with you this product that I found. Okay. I can't hold back any longer. Tell me. So when I was researching for the podcast, I came across a line of skincare products and it was called Moist Diane. And sometimes there <laughs> is a comma. <laughs> Inserted between Moist and Diane, as if the mo- as if we were addressing Diane directly. Sometimes the comma was taken out. So I, I found this all very curious. Um it seemed to be a line of beauty products from Japan. So I think obviously that can cause some problems, uh, just as far as Naming products and then uh, extending those product names to other languages, and you know what are the connotations here? That's really tricky territory. Yeah, and
0: we'll talk more about the, uh, you know how corporations use language to manipulate in a moment. But you're right, there's a like if you don't have the correct like, who this is not a word that you want to necessarily use with a comma and then put someone's name next to it, then you just don't know that moist Diana right now is making my tear ducts in my eye really active. <laughs> But all right, so th- those are some aversion words. Let's flip over to the beautiful, the, the attractive words. I don't know why I'm talking like that. Luxuriate. Um, let's luxuriate in these words. Uh, according to Ben Zimmer, writing for Visual Source, the word selected, uh, the most oftenest favorite, is love. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Okay. Which I thought, okay, that's that's sweet. I think um, that we should have more words for love.
0: I agree. You know, it should be you know, how there's the the whole thing of like the, the you know, 70 words for snow. Yes. And love should be so important that you should have 1 million, right? Or you know, we should probably ask our, our listeners to let us know some of the words that they use instead of love for love. Is there a stand-in? Is there not? Because I would be really interested to know from you guys. Um, but this word is then followed by the really good feel-good term serendipity. Grace. Oh yes, yeah.
1: serendipity does come up a lot. Yeah.
0: Grace and peace. And other favorites are pulchritude, although I have seen pulchritudinous on the other list on word aversions. Eclectic. Yeah, the Guardian. I think they railed
1: against pulchritude and pulchritudinous.
0: Yeah, I just, I didn't really get. Um, other than it sounds like a mismatch from what it means, which is beautiful. Schadenfreude, perspicacious. I like that one. Mm-hmm.
1: M- Mellifluous. Oh yeah. And discombobulate. Discombobulate's a big one. It has so many satisfying uh, syllables in there.
0: It does. That's
1: one that you can really
0: kind of gobble around in your mouth like a bunch of marbles.
1: And that's what some people like. I mean, and and that's also what some people hate, right? So that's a. It's not just the association. It's the the way it sounds, the way it feels to pronounce the word.
0: Well, see, that's the interesting part of it, right? Because um, it's not. Yeah, it's like a physical response, and that's that whole embodied cognition, that if you do something physically, then your, your brain will follow and have those sort of patterns. So if you have discombobulate in your mouth, then you feel sort of like you're luxuriating in language.
1: That's nice, Julie. That's very nice. Ooh, thank you. So for some reason, the, uh, the oi diphthong has gotten a bit of a bad rap. Well, because it shows up in moist...
0: And groin, goiter.
1: Goiter. Goiter. I love goiter. I just love it.
0: <laughs> Should we discuss what an oral diphthong is? Go ahead. All right. Um, well, we're talking about our gliding vowels in a one-syllable word. So it uh diphthong actually translates literally to two voices or two sounds. So it's not just like your straightforward um clip, right? It's cow, ow, cow. That's nice. Yeah. You s- can
1: see but Julia's making a lovely face as she pronounces some I know. of these words.
0: It's too bad we don't have a video accompaniment of this. Too bad. Well see, when, when this brings up this this idea too of um, you know, these diphthongs and, and how words feel in our mouth, it brings up this idea of synesthesia, right? And synesthesia is a perceptual condition in which information between the senses is blended. So if I see a word, I might see a color as well or hear a sound. You
1: guys have podcasted about this before. We right? have.
0: We've definitely touched on this before. So it, this this becomes the question, is is the word aversion or word attraction simply something that is being processed in our brain's so that the other senses are, are not just tacking on connotations to it, but actually trying to take that symbol and uh, reinterpret it in different modes.
1: Right. And so this is a hypothesis that David Eagleman and his uh, lab are testing out over at Baylor. And what they're doing, I mean, they basically, if you guys are interested in taking the survey, and I'm sure they would appreciate it, I took it the other day in mm-hmm. preparation for this podcast, and it takes about 15 minutes, although it didn't for me because I don't think that I have... Uh, this condition, unfortunately, uh, so it didn't really lead me any farther. But this is a hypothesis that they have out there because nobody really knows why do we why do we have these word aversions?
0: Yeah, and I I kind of got a couple of clues from taking the test. I have to say,
1: oh, you did take it.
0: Yeah, I did, and some of the questions were um, like you know, did you have migraines as a child? Did you have any hearing loss as a child? Um, did you have hear, uh, ear infections, so on and so forth? So I think they're trying to see whether or not there have been some things crossed in the brain mm-hmm. initially. And then, um, of course, they talk about, uh, you know, some other conditions like ADD. And I don't know if they talk specifically about schizophrenia, but they're trying to get to the bottom of this. Like, what is driving this synesthesia, this idea that you're looking at a word and feeling something? In fact, uh, one of the questions in the questionnaire was, do certain words trigger a taste in your mouth? Example, does the name Derek taste like earwax?
1: I saw that. I love that. That is so great.
0: Poor Derek. I know. So all the Dereks out there, sorry about that. I don't, for me, I don't, the taste of earwax does not inhabit my mouth when I I'm Not I say sure that your name. i ever
1: tasted earwax. Definitely scabs, fried chicken. But, uh, I don't, have you ever tasted earwax?
0: No, but uh, how do you just throw off scabs and fried chicken? Like, yeah, scabs and fried chicken, I know that.
1: Well, yeah, because, you know, I conducted an experiment when I was younger.
0: Ah, okay.
1: <sighs> no longer. This is no longer a habit. Okay. I'm just saying. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting to be a lexical gustatory type of synesthete. Ah, that's right. That's that's that category, right? It is, it yeah. is indeed.
0: Yeah, I think I had a bit of a visual... But I was low on it, you know, and I think it was more like, hey, you like to dream up things in your head there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about the corporate Scrabble strategy of trying to manipulate language and words to make us uh, do their bidding. Alright, we're back. Did you did you catch any of the, the flagged words from either of the lists in there?
1: Yeah, it's gossamer. And fetching. Fetching, also very nice. Beleaguer. What do you think about beleaguer? Okay, that wasn't in the advertisement, but <laughs> I like beleaguered. I like beleaguered better than beleaguer. You were feeling beleaguered by all the uh podcast research you had to do? It's yeah, it's more impactful.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but squab, squab was on the list. Squib, squab, squib, squab. So squab is a kind of bird, right? And uh, I, for years I've been saying squib, squab. I didn't realize that that was a word that had risen to the top of maligned words.
1: Also, cornucopia.
0: Yes, and I in f- fact, we we have a little thing we're going to do at the end here. We're going to construct our own sentences of, of words. Oh, and, okay. I don't. Cornucopia wanna... shows up in my sentence, by the way. Okay. And I invite listeners to do this as well.
1: Yes, do do send us your crazy word aversion sentences. Yeah,
0: because the uh, the idea is let's see if we can really make people um, sort of wince here. Um, all right, so manipulating language, we've got corporations uh, masters at this. Masters at this, and you brought this up the other day. You were like, you know what? The the letters X and Y they're used in a lot
1: of products, particularly well, X and Z. excuse me, X and Z. You want to go for those big Scrabble jackpot. Letters. Yeah. Just make them stand out. Other, I don't know that it does anymore just due to the preponderance of ecstasy, um, in fr- particularly pharmaceutical names.
0: Yeah. And that was the idea, right? At first, that they were being used so that they would stand out in the market.
1: Yeah. I mean, think Xanax, think Zyrtec, uh, Zoloft. What other ones you got, Julie? Oh, um, I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> A lot. Zufia. Zufia, are you making that up? (laughs) Zinnia,
1: (laughs) Zaya. Yeah, so it seems like linguists and uh, working in tandem with corporations could wade into a whole world of trouble, so you do want to consult the linguist when you're figuring out what you're going to name your venerable product. And so um, a lot of corporations have gone with the X and Z strategy, but, I mean, there's also just the word itself. Okay, for example... Do you remember when that tablet called the iPad came out? What is it? Have you heard of this thing called the iPad? Oh, yeah, 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 that, the thing. Yeah, yeah, that thing where you do the thing and, you know. and the thing and then your kid just takes control of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know that. Yeah, so I remember when iPad first came out, I was thinking, huh, that's really odd that they would name something after a you know, a female um, product. You were Uh, thinking of pads. I was thinking of... Sanitary pads. I was thinking of sanitary pads. Thank you. And then, eventually, the iPad did its iPad thing and took over the world and is uh, running for, you know, world dictatorship, and uh, the iPad kind of left my brain uh, with its associations. So I think that there is very much a case, again, anecdotally, in terms of words ever evolving and in terms of our own personal associations with those words changing, because tell you the truth, it's kind of flipped now. So hygiene products I almost think of as sort of sleek, <laughs> <laughs> like an iPad. It's weird the way that works.
0: I thought I saw you on, on the train the other day um, just flipping out a pad. And then just kind of typing on it and looking (laughs) around and looking like very self-satisfied there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure that was a pad, but now I know. Um. All right, so th- that's this idea, right, that you can reframe and you can retrain your brain. Um, but I did want to point out, uh, before we talk a little bit more about that, is that uh, advertisers and linguists who are consulting with them can also give advertisers a jump by using alliteration and rhyme. We're I about- love
1: alliteration. Yeah. We- love it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, you know, when we talk about alliteration and rhyme, Nutter Butter, YouTube, uh, onomatopoeias, right, like Twitter. Absolutely. These are things that stick in the brain. And plosive consonants. These are really important in advertising, too, because these plosive, you can already hear it, plosive consonants cause the airflow to stop during pronunciation because there's an occlusion in the mouth. So we're talking about the glottis in the back of the throat or the tongue. And what happens is that the pressure of that air builds up against whatever it is that's occluding the airway. And then when it's released, the, the air is allowed to to pass, you get a more forceful sound. So... And,
1: okay, so if it's a more forceful sound, is it a more memorable sound?
0: Well, yeah, because you're giving a little bit more emphasis to it. So if I'm, you know, close of B or a hard C, like K, or a D, a G, a K, a P, or T, it's just more
1: powerful. Powerful, right? No, definitely. Which leads to this
0: idea that some words... When they are said, are going to have a, a much you want more. To say, of, you want
1: to say impactful again? No, I was going
0: to say more of an emotional impact. I really was. I wasn't going to do that to you a third time. You're you're kind enough to come on and hang out with me. So, <laughs> uh but this kind of gets this idea of there might be the, the word that that you really really dislike that that could be one of the reasons why you dislike it besides the cultural connotation that it has. And I don't know if you're ready to talk about it or if you want to.
1: So it's worth pointing out that there's no surprise then why moist kind of reigns supreme, because it has the connotation for a lot of people, a lot of, I think, women in particular. I would be curious to hear from men if they have the uh, moist word aversion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has the connotation, like we talked about, and it also has that um, that oi sound that yeah we don't really like to say, apparently. Although I still maintain that goiter is awesome.
0: It, goiter is awesome. But when, when we talk about plosives, and I'm not gonna make you say your word, by the way. Cause it's not a good word, and I see that you don't wanna say this word. So I'm gonna say another word that is a forceful word, and I'm gonna say it in the context of that movie, Dick Tracy. There are some words that you can just lob around, and they are gonna have more of an impact.
1: I can do this, Julie. You don't uh, have to, this is an awful word. My, my word aversion is, uh, to, the word, the the, the c word, um, for women. It's hard for me to even say. It's hard for me to talk about. This is the only connection I have to word aversion. I can type all day. I can type all sorts of things. I can type weird stuff. I can type impactful over and over and not have any reaction. But the c word for me, uh, it's just it's just one of those words. It's it's the only word for me that that I have that reaction to. Yeah, and again, this is you've got so many.
0: I mean, actually, if you went through the list, you could just take off everything, right? You could say it's got the plosive consonants, two of them, right? Uh And um, it's got the cultural associations. And it's just mean-spirited. So when you lob it at someone, it's got a lot more force than another word. It's
1: worth noting, though, that people uh, have attempted to reclaim the C word as... I don't know whether they'll be successful. I think there are a lot of people (laughs) like me out there who have this crazy relationship and just are really averse to it, but... um, I, I I admire the attempt to reclaim. Yeah, and I do, too. And I understand, too, that in other parts of the world that it's
0: not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, you some were people saying that just, in
1: Australia. Yeah. yeah,
0: I think it was in Australia. Maybe in in Britain, too. You guys let me know out there. But it's sort of thrown around as in a more playful sense. But I think for for you and I, obviously, women in the United States, it's one of those things that's like taken
1: out of AK-47. Julie? Yes, Allison? Have we run out of creamy? Oh, moist. The... Oh. Crepuscular, word-averse topics for today.
0: I think we have. We have. The only thing I wanted to mention is that not only, you know, is it going to differ from language to language, what words are are word-aversive or word-attractive, but also tonal aspects of it. Ah, yeah, we didn't get to the tonal language. Yeah, so if you're speaking in Vietnamese, one word could mean five different things depending on the way that you pronounce that word, which then brings up this whole idea of the musicality of language and how it affects emotion and how we process. But I think for the time being, I think it's worth saying that it's we can all agree that words have emotion and that our brains are processing it in a certain way, and everything is pretty much codified. So you take a word like moist... And you start to tease it apart and you see that it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and then maybe nothing to some people.
1: Pretty fascinating stuff, and geologists.
0: I would, I would love more um, talking about the soil.
1: Geologists. Oh, but they're used to it because they're doing—they're dealing with soil. Yes. they're dealing with moist soil, so they're—they're they're dealing with that long all day.
0: They—they they probably are like, "What's what's up with moist?" I love it. How yeah. else am I going to describe this? You're taking something valuable away from me when you say that we should take moist away from the English language. So, do you have your sentence of word aversion, or did you, did you already lay it on me?
1: Uh, I may have laid it on you with that putrid, crepuscular business that we were just discussing. Okay,
0: so here's mine. What do you got? Here's mine. When the slack-wearing, squab-loving man thrust his pinky into his moist navel and extracted (gasps) an impressive amount of crud, he was inspired to create a new design for band-aids featuring a cornucopia of scabs the color of fudge.
1: (laughs) Well done, Julie, well done. Thank
0: you, thank you. Sorry if that kind of freaked everybody out or anybody out. I think... Yeah, yeah, we should probably leave it there. Okay, we yeah. will do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let us know, you guys. Do you have word aversions? Do you have a sentence of word aversions you'd like to share with us? Oh, we'd love to hear them. We would really, really love to hear them. And, you know, do you have any thoughts on how we overlay words with intended or unintended meaning based on our experiences in the world? And did we leave anything out? Oh, surely we did. Let us know on Facebook, Twitter, or you can send us a handcrafted email at blowthemind at discovery.com Allison thank you for counterbalancing my flummy tones today with your dulcet ones and hanging out with us Julia it's a pleasure to be here oh dude for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com